Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I will be speaking with John Spencer, co-editor of Understanding Urban Warfare alongside Leon Collins. It was published by Hellgate Publishing Limited in 2022. John Spencer is an award-winning scholar, professor, author, combat veteran, and internationally recognized expert and advisor on urban warfare and other military-related topics. He serves as the chair of Urban Warfare Studies with the Madison Policy Forum. He recently served as the chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point, co-director of the Urban Warfare Project, and host of the Urban Warfare Project podcast. Uh, John Spencer, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, usually we like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what motivated you to work on this book. Sure. So my name is John Spencer. I'm the chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute and at the Madison Policy Forum. I served 25 years in the U.S. Army with two combat deployments to Iraq, which were both uh, 90% urban operations for over two years. And then about a decade ago, I started studying academically urban warfare um, as part of a, a th- basically a think tank for the head general of the U.S. Army. And for a year, we studied could the army fight in a mega city or operate because um, often militaries get assigned everything from disaster relief to high intensity combat. Um, and then I, you know, I was teaching at West Point, teaching military strategy, and we stood up a research center at West Point called the Modern War Institute. And as we were standing that up, I started to really focus on urban warfare um, and started writing about it, uh, writing reports, doing research trips into combat areas. And then in 2018, I retired and stayed as the chair of urban warfare studies um, with the Modern War Institute. So now I have a dream job. I get to just solely write, think, uh, do podcasts about urban warfare. Yeah, uh, yeah, you host your own uh, podcasts uh, as well. We'll get we'll get to that uh, later on in the interview. But uh, yeah, so uh, why is urban warfare so significant in the 21st uh, century? Like you just mentioned, even how what 80, 90 percent of the operations you conducted in Iraq were urban related. Yeah, and I know we'll talk about the the trends you know, the trends of warfare. I think why it's so significant is that militaries have always fought for cities. They have always been the strategic, such as if you want to take a country, you have to take the capital because it's the seat of political power, the seat of civil um, populations, the seat of the cities are the economic engines of nations. If you look across the spectrum of the history of war from castle city-states to World War II, they're usually fighting for a city because it was the center of gravity of the political objective. But as the world changed, militaries found themselves increasingly fighting in cities. And that is an 
just by multiple factors, the hardest place you could ask a military to conduct a military operation to achieve a political objective on the planet. And I, I'm not just, you know, because I'm the urban guy, I, I, I firmly believe that. And, and hopefully I can justify why it is the hardest place on the planet to conduct military operations. Yeah. And on the very first page of the book, you say that too often militaries actually are unprepared for the challenges of urban warfare. And I was really surprised. I think you were the one who mentioned that the U.S. Army doesn't even have an official training base for urban warfare. And I thought that was really strange because I got friends who do airsoft and even they have like a whole complex for, you know, to simulate urban operations. But it's like, okay, so they could do it like in that context. But yet in the actual military, they don't have that. That was just very strange. But yeah, can you explain that? Like why are military so unprepared? Sure. I mean, the military, of course, has um, places in the desert, places in the in swampy woods of where they build up a lot of buildings, you know, 20 to 500 buildings, and they have combat simulations in them. But the really reason why militaries find themselves unprepared for large-scale operations in populated cities, um, because you're not going to find a place on the planet that is just a bunch of buildings like we like to play airsoft or, or laser tag for the U.S. military, is because really across the history of warfare, the militaries have been written into their books, avoid and bypass cities at all costs. Militaries don't want to be sucked into urban terrain because it negates, one, what they want to do, which is destroy the other, the enemy. Um, and it and it actually reduces all most of their capabilities. Sometimes people call, while I use it because it's a good way to just shorten the conversation, the great equalizer. So in the urban terrain, because of the, the physical, the buildings, the underground, the skyscrapers, the density of the buildings, it reduces things like airplanes can see from the sky, you know, satellite imagery, all these things. It allows somebody to hide in that terrain, unlike any other environment, because concrete is you know a lot harder than woods or jungle. And it's going to be really hard to hit things in there. So it actually equalizes a lot of the even the world's most advanced militaries technologies in the urban terrain. So militaries plan to avoid it. Um, bypass it or they're you know, they're holding on to a vision of a past war when there may have been big battles in the open areas i personally think that the age of open terrain warfare is dead um, and nothing that i'm seeing in, in which i know we'll talk about in ukraine or anywhere else in the world leads me to believe otherwise all roads lead to urban but militaries find themselves unprepared because it's really hard, like we were just saying, to 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 train for urban warfare, given that you know, you really can't you know take over Chicago and start doing a giant military exercise inside of it. Yeah, and almost like almost like how each city has its own personality, so to speak, Absolutely. so to speak. So uh, yeah, and part of this was what you mentioned is the urban triad uh, that kind of helps complex. Uh, complicate things uh what's the urban triad sure so by definition usually when i talk to military people or even civilians when i say urban warfare they think about you know fighting in buildings you know you clearing rooms and and that tough building to building house to house fighting but urban by definition and we use the triad because it urban 
definition contains three things. The physical man-made structures on top of you know natural terrain, as in like the buildings and um, the population, by definition, to, to have urban, you have to have a population present and the infrastructure to support that population. So, you know, physical buildings, people, and the infrastructure equals urban. So that's why if you just build a, you know, build a, you know, some buildings out in the open area, that's not urban terrain. That's, that's just buildings. So the urban triad is the way that the U S army defines urban terrain. Now, one thing I found really interesting about this book was that each chapter was not necessarily like the, uh, the contributors like writing it out. It was actually, uh, you giving interviews to each, uh, each of the contributors. And it was kind of interesting. Uh, why did you choose that? Uh, format so for a couple reasons uh, one you know i'm a student of urban warfare although i have job security because most militaries around the world don't allow people to focus on one environment of the world um so i interview experts in a, a certain field from smart cities to uh, veterans of battles so that i can learn i'm also a huge fan of oral histories in the way that we tell stories. So absolutely, each chapter is an interview I did with an expert and then heavily edited with intros and more research and maps and everything. But I wanted to hold on to that almost like storytelling element of gathering the nuggets of expertise from all these different experts to put it into a readable you know, format that I think, so I usually say in, in my approach to studying urban warfare, there's two major problems. And that's really what the why I titled the book Understanding Urban Warfare. There's two big problems. One is for the military or whoever it is to understand the city. Because like you said, every city is unique. There's such a variety of cities um, based on why they are there, why they evolved, uh, what they serve now to their local, regional, global environments. So the, you have to understand the city, and that's a whole field of study, right? Urban sciences is at most universities, urban planners, urban resilience, um, everything from smart cities to developing cities. And then the other problem is understanding how to accomplish a military operation, which is a great variety of really the science of warfare, the tactics, and all this that all change once you enter the urban environment. So that's why I wanted we, um, with my co-author, wanted to stick to this format of really using my podcast interviews, which are research, and and really turning those into hopefully readable chapters. No, it was uh, very readable, and I do encourage our listeners to please read it and also listen to your podcast, but we'll get to that. Uh, but yeah. yeah, one of the major experts you had was David uh, Kilcullen, who's actually one of the leading experts on counterinsurgency, and I think he's just about to come out with a new edition of his book, The Dragons and the Snakes, which actually... Uh, if, that's a whole nother discussion, but that also adds whole complexity to this issue. But yeah, he mentioned four mega trends that are kind of driving this uh, emphasis on urban warfare. And maybe we could discuss them because he lists population growth, uh, urbanization, obviously, uh, what he calls literization and then network uh, connectivity. Uh, how did he explain that uh, to you? Sure. So David is a close friend and he wrote a book called Out of the Mountains back in, I think it was 2016, which really you know, took on these mega trends, these these 
unescapable trends that the world must listen to and militaries especially have to listen to um, to achieve national interests, whatever those may be. So the first one is uh, population growth. It's just fascinating, really. Um, I love the numbers. So it took thousands of years for the human race to achieve uh, 3 billion people on the planet. And that was in 1960 when we hit 3 billion. It took thousands of years to hit that point. Well, it only took 40 more years to double that to where we're at 6 billion. And now estimates are that by 2035, I think, we'll triple that 3 billion that it took thousands of years to get to. So uh, the population growth of the planet is is unescapable. You know, and most people understand that has impacts on the use of the the land, climate uh, change. It has such a impact on the the world and the way we prepare for whatever it is, whether that's a natural disaster or a military operation. The other one is urbanization. So there's a lot more people on the planet. Well, those people are moving to urban terrain. Um, 180,000 people move to a city a day. And that's not my, that's a United Nations people that track this figure. And that's, that's pretty mind blowing in and of itself. I mean, it took by 1950, only 30% of the world. So this is post-World War II. So most of the things we hold on about war really apply to World War II, right? In pure competition, fighting Russia, fighting China. It was in a world where only 30% of the world was urbanized. Well, by 2020, over 50%, uh, closer to 60% of the world was urbanized. And keep in mind that that includes large swaths of the planet that aren't inhabitable you know, or just not populated like in Africa or or the Arctic. Um, most of the developed world is over 80% urbanized. So urbanization is a massive trend that is increasing daily. Um, so littoralization means that people live near coastlines. And that figure is a little harder to tie down, but I think it was over over 40%. Um, when we were writing our books, live about 100 kilometers from a coastline. But if you think about it, most cities need some large body of water, whether that's a massive river uh, like the Tigris or the Dnieper or you know, you name it, uh, a large river, or they live along the coastline. It's just a part of civil, the rise of civilizations right, from Mesotomia to, to today in, the, in mar- most parts of the Pacific where urbanization has exploded. So that's a significant consideration about people living on the coast. How are you going to enter an area, the impact of a natural disaster on the coastline? Each one now is in the figures of billions of dollars, a single natural disaster because it's along the coastlines. And then lastly, connectivity. Uh, And I wrote another book similar with a similar vein about connected soldiers, but connectivity means that the the world is more connected. And, and even since I've written that book, written this book, which came out last month, uh, you know, things like Starlink, low orbit satellites, um, parts of the world that were never connected to even their nation, let alone the, the global community are now connected. And all those connections matter in, in our, really our interdependency, our access to information, how political um, you know, stability is or is not achieved. Uh, that connectedness is is huge. Now, 
how do different militaries kind of approach this issue? Because this issue was addressed in the book, like how uh, the United States military, uh, some of the other NATO allies, and also Russia, more specifically like the first and second Chechen wars and uh, a little bit of the Ukrainian war. We'll get to that uh, a little bit later. But yeah, how do they how's like a different approach from different militaries? Yeah. So there are a lot of there are some intricacies in the way a military approaches how they design their military, what they plan to use their military for. Uh, most Western militaries are either a part of the NATO alliance or expeditionary military. Um, the the one exception is like Israel, which approaches urban warfare a little different because they're not expeditionary; they're solely for defense, and they know which urban environments are most likely in which they'll be. Um, where a Western military might not have that ability and they have to prepare for, you know, global deployment. You know, one of the differences though, between let's say a Western military and a Russian military and what we've seen play out is that one of the reasons that I say urban warfare is the hardest to fight on the planet is because it, because of the laws of war, the Geneva conventions, everything post even, you know, war, the laws of war predate World War II, World War One, but, you know, they have been strengthened, new laws, because we don't, the world doesn't want war to impact urban areas and civilians like it has in the past. So a Western military, if it gets, if it goes into an urban area, is automatically going to be constrained on the use of force. So what it can do in, in an urban fight, um, how it has to have proportionality in, in, in what weapons it uses the things it can and can't shoot at, protected populations, protected places, are all a part of why it's so hard to fight or conduct operations in military terrain because you're going to have more constraints than, let's say, you're in the jungle or winter warfare in the Arctic. Um, well, Russia seems to not care as much about the the rules of law uh, or the, the laws of war. And you know, fires at anything it wants to include theaters full of children and hospitals and all these things that are protected by that a Western military will automatically not use explosive force against um, without going through this, the laws of war and proportionality, military necessity, all of these things. So that's one of the biggest differences in the way different countries approach, approach urban warfare. But there are also a lot of similarities to include unpreparedness. So that's one of the similarities, which is job security for me, which is, you know, um, but I'm also the huge advocate. I've traveled the world training militaries on just how they think about urban fights to include, which I know you, you'll probably ask me about is one of the best predictors of the way we're going to fight or the fights that we're going to have are looking to the past and making sure we're grabbing the right lessons from past urban battles. Yeah, there are several uh, case studies in the book, and we'll uh, get to those. But uh, yeah, and another issue about urban environments is, of course, with the explosion of urbanization that we just discussed, you know, states or governments are having trouble kind of keeping control of them. And uh, one of your guests uh, came up with the concept of what he called feral cities. And uh, what are those and how does that have impact on urban operations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was my my friend Robert Norton, who's a professor at the Naval War College, that developed this concept called feral cities. After he had visited many cities in which the government doesn't control power, um, may not even control um, services, places around the world 
you know, Mogadishu, Somalia was a, a great example, but lots of places in Latin America where you have a major city of millions of people and you have large swaths of the city that aren't, there is no um, state c- control. So the power is actually with gangs and criminal groups and drug lords and things like that. So while it, it is a urban environment that is functioning, is feral almost like a animal that you know that goes wild um and loses its its domestication it's not controlled by state authorities it, it's it's almost off on its own to its own world and and he he had a metric in which to assess a city and you can have parts of a city that are feral and, and other parts that aren't and i think even in the united states we uh, we could say that there at times there have been parts of of different cities that have gone you know, rogue, have gone feral. Yeah, and uh, we talked about the networked uh, connectivity, and how does that have an impact on like the urban environment and urban operations? Uh, smart cities, as it's called in the in the book, uh, what is the significance of that? Sure. So there, there's a two part question there. So smart city is a lot easier to answer. Smart city is as as the advancements in technologies to improve quality of life. A smart city by definition of the expert I interviewed was anyone that uses advanced technologies to improve the quality of life, whether that's traffic light sensors, um, you all kinds of, of technologies to improve the quality of life for the city and the urban area. I mean, that what that means significant for everyone is that there's more sensors, right? There's, there's more cameras, there's more technologies collecting, um, with with the intent to improve the urban environment um, in military application though that second question about how does that con- connectivity and in- information right information is can be used to improve quality of life and it can also be improved for to contest power in an urban environment so one of the theories about information is that um, in in weak states where either it's it's a a bad uh, governance or a authoritarian dictatorship is that once citizens have access to information, they learn about, they learn more in it, and it has in some parts of the world increased political instability, and that's what leads to again a military understanding a urban environment or a city and understanding how to accomplish a mission, even if it's restore order, in places like Rio de Janeiro where it the city went feral as in the the gangs controlled more of the city than the state did so they 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 implemented a policy where the military would take over control which is is what you don't want in a non-war environment but that access populations having access to information governments want to stop that and it's becoming increasingly hard for places like iran and other parts of the world to keep their citizens like china unplugged from that connectivity which is a rapidly um almost uncontrollable global trend 
yeah, we're seeing this uh, with the war in Ukraine with like videos and all sorts of open source intelligence just all over the place uh, being used. And uh, so, yeah, so let's get to some of the historical case studies. The first one is the Battle of Ortana, which was in the Italian campaign during World War II. What is the significance of, of that case study for urban warfare studies? So, yeah, the, it's an amazing one. I love. I just love case studies. Um, even in my field of urban warfare research, sometimes people will invoke a name of a city to say, like, uh, like Stalingrad. So I love doing the hard work of a case study, and it's really hard to summarize a battle. But for interestingly, for the Battle of Ortona, which I interviewed one of the world's leading experts, uh, an actual friend of mine, Major Jason Giroux, who's a Canadian officer, because at that battle, it was uh, the Canadian army against the German army defending urban terrain. Um, there's really some fascinating aspects of the use of the natural terrain to create a very effective urban defense. And the Germans established, even to the surprise of, of the allies and the surprise of the Canadians, a very effective defense on a piece of urban terrain that was already constraining based on the plateaus and, and the Italian geography. Um, they did not understand the battle they were going into, but it, it's also a great example how a, a effective, motivated, well-trained military like the Canadian army was able to adapt very quickly and use um, some of their equipment in an abnormal way to achieve their goal, which was to liberate that city from German control. And it's a really great study on both how to build an effective defense, but also how to how to adapt quickly to overcome those advantages of an urban defense that the Germans tried to use. Yeah, and I think that was on the Gustav uh, line. Uh, yeah, the Gustav correct? line. Absolutely. Yeah, they didn't yeah, lose yeah, they... the line. Yeah, uh, and that it took them like a it took the Allies like a year to really punch through, and then uh, more famously, you know, Battle of Monte Cassino, which they made yep. use of the bombed out. Monastery. So they call they call um they call the Battle of Torino, which I didn't know before studying it. The as soon as it was happening, they started to call it the Little Stalingrad, <laughs> or the Italian Stalingrad, actually. Hmm, that's very interesting. Now, the next case study was uh, Mogadishu, which we kind of discussed a little bit, and this was kind of significant because this was probably one of the first uh, major urban operations that the U.S. military faced, especially after the Cold War. Yeah, it's a significant one in our own history. And, and like like Ortona, I wanted to study, you know, there, we don't own the, you know, the ground of lessons learned from urban terrain. Absolutely not. And I try to uh, study the entire history. Um, Mogadishu, though, is, is is almost another one of those legendary battles that because of the fame of Black Hawk Down book, the Black Hawk Down movie, um, it, it actually had long-reaching effects on the psyche of the American system uh, towards urban warfare. Um, we interviewed three of the really prominent veterans of that of that battle to include leadership to understand the decisions that were made. So there's so many lessons here about ensuring that you have you understand the urban terrain, which was in Mogadishu was fascinating because because of the Civil War, Mogadishu as a city changed overnight because 50,000 refugees moved into the city and started putting up temporary housing. So no map, no even satellite imagery would have you know, let you understand even the roads. 
but also understanding um, that if you're going to do an urban operation, that planning and ensuring of all the necessary tools, which is a major lesson out of the Battle of Mogadishu that um, hopefully gets kept for a while, um, that if you're going to go into that dense of an urban terrain against that a contested enemy like that, you know, there are tools like armor and fire support and things like that you need to have, which um, in that situation, the Rangers had requested, but the again, all wars politics by other means, the political apparatus said, no, that would be going against our policy of saying why we are there. So there in each one of these case studies, there's like little tactical, like from war fighting lessons. And then there are major strategic political lessons about ensuring um, everyone who's making decisions understands the the mission that that has been assigned to the military. Yeah. And then the next couple of uh, uh, case studies are from uh, the war in Iraq, which uh, I'm sure was a little bit personal for you to have to research. Uh, And the first one that's mentioned is the second battle of Fallujah. And uh, what was the significance of, uh, of that battle? Uh, So the second, the 2004 second battle of Fallujah was a really interesting case study because a lot of people don't understand, again, one of the difficulties of urban warfare is time. Is that the Because of the intensity of the population, sometimes militaries don't have the time. Actually, and we didn't cover it in the book. We've, I've recently covered it in a case study. It's hard to understand. All we do in the intro, try to understand the first battle of Fallujah uh, that happened in April of 2004, and then nine months later, the second battle of Fallujah that happened in November, is that if that a military actually can succeed very well in a major battle in a contested urban area with the right type of intelligence preparation of the battlefield, the right um, formations prepared for the challenges that are, are ahead in that level of understanding. So in the second battle of Fallujah, the U.S. military, the Marines, the Army, the Air, Air Force, it was probably one of the most successful joint urban operations of the modern era um, but but the caveat is there is that they 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 had nine six to nine months to prepare for it to ensure that they had uh, set the conditions in the political environment ensure that there was media coverage to to cover the information battle and we haven't talked about that yet but another reason why urban warfare is hard is that there's lots of people there the world is now watching because the world is connected and that view of the military conducting the operation can bring a military either to a halt like it did in the first battle of Fallujah, or if done correctly, can um, reinforce the just war aspects of the military mission that the military is doing in that city in general. And the city of Fallujah was to remove the terrorists that had um, used the city as a safe haven to conduct suicide attacks and, and many other bad things against the Iraqi government and the U.S. forces trying to help the Iraq government stand up a nation. Yeah, and then there's also the overall political context in America because of the fierce debate about whether or not to even go into Iraq. And also 2004 was an election year. You know, Bush was running for re-election, and that was a, anything uh, the military did would have impact on. on yeah, and the timing, the timing, again, timing is so interesting looking at these case studies of why that battle at that moment, um, but the timing of that battle 
a lot of people don't remember either is that there was also a, the the Iraqi elections upcoming, and the and the the governance at the time could not have a feral, ungoverned enemy city in its country as it's trying to hold a national election because even the people of Fallujah couldn't have voted. Yeah. And then uh, the second case study uh, from the Iraq war was uh, the Battle of Ramadi. Yeah, the Battle of Ramadi. Uh, Another fascinating one, um, which is, look, uh, one of the reasons of the case studies is to show show the military and to show the world there is more than one way to accomplish a mission in urban terrain. Ramadi is another example of actually the guidance given to the commanders of Ramadi was don't don't conduct another Fallujah because the Battle of Fallujah was um, created a very destructive battle um, that had a lot of political implications. Um, It it did cause a lot of people around the world to question um, both the U.S. military's approach and the, the Iraqi government's ability to run a nation. So the guidance given to the commanders in Ramadi was don't pull up Fallujah. So they had to figure out a different way to rid the city of its terrorist influence in in, in the violence that was happening in the city. So they had, they used a different approach which, um, about basically securing a small part of the city and then extending security and governance by the Iraqi people in, in basically block to block and basically over – you know, weeks and months using this um, format to gain back smaller and smaller sections of the city rather than encircling the city and clearing 68,000 houses in a matter of days like they did in the Battle of Fallujah. So it's another case study almost in a, it, relatively the same era of there are there's more than one way given all the variables and time is always a variable the political environment, the 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 what the political because um, politicians set the objectives of the military. The military figure out how to do it uh, under the guidance that they've been given. And then the uh, the next one was the Battle of Sadr City, and uh, I've been hearing a little bit of news about the that being back in the news uh, with some of the Iraqi elections. Yeah, so the Battle of Sadr City, interestingly, was one I was in uh, as a young uh, infantry company commander. Um, I, I always, I'd never tried to rely on my own experiences. So I even interviewed one of my commanders, um, in that situation to have a better understanding of things that even at the lower level, you may not see. And, you know, I'm, a, I, you know, I try to, I don't think personal experiences are always the best for understanding even a battle you were in. Um, so the battle of Sadr city was a, a fascinating battle in which, a city of 2 million people within the city of Baghdad. So it's, it's almost a city into itself that, that was homogeneous of a Shia population. It was built um, by Saddam for the specific reason of putting the Shia population in it. Um, that was led by a Shia cleric that has continued to be a problem for Iraq um, under his name is Muqtada Asadr. Before the operation of the Battle of Sadr City, um, the people were coming out of this city within a city and firing rockets at the Iraqi government in the green zone. So the military mission, my mission, uh, our mission was to stop the rockets from coming out of the urban terrain. But you can't go into the city because of some things that had happened previously because of the political environment. The U.S. military was not allowed to go inside our city, but it had to stop the rockets from coming out of it. 
So one of the things that ended up happening over the, the days and weeks was to put a wall, a concrete wall, 18 um, or eight feet tall, thousands of pounds segments and, and slowly over multiple weeks, put a wall around the city so that the enemy could not come out of the city with a rocket and launch it to a certain site it needed. But it also ended up making the enemy give up the advantages of urban terrain because it came out to to contest the wall being put in. Um, and they would fire at the wall. Then that actually removes the enemy from all the restrictions on the use of force that is so hard in urban terrain to distinguish where the enemy is to ensure that it's not a civilian. So when the enemy comes out of his house, shoots at a wall being put up, then it's pretty easy to reduce the enemy's capabilities um, so basically, we did reverse siege warfare. We circumvented the city. There's a fascinating case study on, again, there's another way to achieve the military mission given all the, the variables of time, terrain, political environment, all of that. And then the final Iraq uh, case study was the Battle of uh, Mosul. And this has been contested ground uh uh, plenty of times in Iraq, including um, more recently with uh, ISIS, I remember. Yeah, so this is a, this is actually a conversation about the 2017 Battle of Mosul, which was another another iconic battle where ISIS, you know, less than five thousand ISIS had taken this city, a massive urban area of hundreds of thousands of people hostage, and they they deemed it their caliphate. They they were going to defend it to their deaths, and it took a hundred thousand security forces to encircle that city. Um. Iraqi security forces backed by U.S. air power, the greatest air power in the world. It took them nine months to liberate that city from ISIS. Uh, so there's a lot of lessons to learn in there that even with the most advanced weapons of the world, um, the, the 80% of the city was destroyed in liberating it because an enemy who is prepared, and unfortunately ISIS had two years to prepare that battle for a defense and they did it. They dug tunnels. They dug trench lines. They had multiple defensive barrier belts that made it so hard to liberate it. But the goal, of course, by the Iraqi government was to liberate it. But there's from tactical little lessons all the way up to the political environment about you know the longer you wait to make a decision on a on a battle like that, the the harder it's going to be on the civilian population, on the actual infrastructure. On the military, I mean, the Iraqi military played a huge price to liberate Mosul, but it had to be done. It was a strategic objective that that was the center of gravity of the ISIS terrorism because they they viewed it as that urban train was the center of their you know fictitious caliphate. Now, moving from Iraq, we go to, I believe, the Philippines with the Battle of uh, Morari, where uh, the Philippine government has been facing uh, an insurgency from ISIS and uh, similar groups as well. Yeah, so it's basically a similar construct to the 2017 Battle of Mosul. But like we were talking about earlier, is every city is different. Um, the enemy in the city is different. Um, but a similar situation but in that situation, the Philippine military, like some militaries assume they can do, emptied the city of people. So 90% of, of the, the city of Morari in the Philippines was emptied of the civilians, but there are still 1,000-plus um, enemy fighters, ISIS fighters. But 
it's there are also differences in the battle because the Philippine military didn't have all the resources that the Iraqi military did, like tanks um, and, and other assets. But there are also some fascinating lessons from the Battle of Moraria on the power of information operations and maintaining the narrative. So the Philippine government and through the military spent a lot of resources and a lot of time and manpower to ensure that they maintained the moral high ground in the country and the nation and the globe to why that operation was happening. Um, it was because ISIS was, was um, holding the ground from the actual population and causing that operation to happen. But it's another view of how destructive urban warfare can, can be when you have an enemy who's willing to die for every building um, who has an underground network um, where you have even you know, you were plant you were training for jungle operations your entire career up until that moment it's pretty some a lot of fascinating lessons there and then we move to the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan in uh, 2020 uh, and the Battle of uh, Shusha that uh, that kind of got a lot of bit of uh, news uh, at the time I I quite remember aside from the pandemic. <laughs> Yeah, so the second N battle of Nagorno-Karabakh, which when I tell people, they're like, what? Uh, but in between Armenia and Azerbaijan, there is a contested area that's been contested for decades um, since you know, the fall of the Soviet Union. For, it's just it's a very heavily contested area between the two. So it's been a basically a, a militarized zone, a, a, a space between the two countries. And in 2020, um, there a war began over that terrain and Azerbaijan penetrated the DMZ um, to liberate Nagorno-Karabakh, which it, it viewed as theirs. Um, I would I went and traveled that battleground to to study that war because even though it had a lot of reporting about the effectiveness of drones and drone warfare and that you can't hide on the battlefield. The future of wars is, is, is about these robots and these drones and killer drones. Um, what I saw when I, from reporting and why I went there was that the, the entire war ended over one city, the city of Susha, which like every city matters. This city sits, sits on top of a 400 foot cliff. It's a fortress city. Um, and the Azerbaijanis snuck into the city without a major fight by by scaling, you know, not with ropes or anything, but walking up a cliff to infiltrate or sneak into the city so that the defenders, you know, most of their plan to fight was over because the enemy's already, your enemy, the attacker's already inside the city. Um, so like a Trojan horse. But then what's important about that battle is that the war ended once that city had fallen. Um, it was the strategic and decisive battle. Um, and, and I went to travel that ground to see how a city that should have been defendable for months, if not years, fell in a matter of days based on the planning that the and the execution of a of a course of action that you know, instead of the, I think there's a classic approach that people think that, if there's a city, you got to surround the city and you got to have this long destroy the city to save it, which is a saying that came out of the Vietnam War that I use often. That's not necessarily true. There, every city is different, all the variables in which the military, and that's why understanding is the most important part. 
yeah and what are some like critical lessons that militaries uh should learn in when dealing with uh urban operations and of course as we've been discussing you know each case is uh different so there's not like a one size fits all approach but what are some major uh, lessons they should keep in mind when planning for planning or executing urban operations so there's a lot of lessons and um um, this is why you you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast and we point out in the book that there's because of the cultural desire by militaries to not fight in urban areas there is no um, there are schools about shooting and breaching in urban terrain like you said the laser tag and the paintball kind of scenarios, but there's no research center. There's no school on teaching how to plan for urban operations. And most of these case studies, I'm pretty much an advocate that a lot of the winning or losing a battle happens in planning for it, understanding the lessons and the requirements to conduct whatever the mission is. And I mean, this is the difficulty of being in the military. You have to be prepared for a wide range of operations from disaster relief to um, taking a capital city to achieve your political objective, which is regime change, much like Russia did in Ukraine and failed at the Battle of Kiev. Some of the lessons are is that you know, urban warfare is not an infantryman fight. It's not about clearing rooms. It's a, like in the second battle of Fallujah, the biggest lesson there is that urban, modern urban warfare is a joint, as in it requires army, marines, air force, even navy if it's a littoral city. It's a joint operation. It's a combined arms operation. It's not just infantry, but you know the military needs tanks. And no matter what anybody tells you, the tank is not dead. In urban, I, I, a really good podcast I did with an Israeli general is only an idiot goes into an urban fight without a tank. Um, because there, that, there's no replacement for that mobile protected firepower. So in these case studies, militaries should learn that in urban warfare, you need combined arms. You need engineers, armor, infantry, fires. You need it all. And that's usually who wins and can overcome the equalizing effect of the urban terrain is the military who can combine, who is planned for it. I mean, there are also general rules of thumb that in urban operations – you you need five times the uh, if you're attacking what the defender has as in combat power um it requires more troops you you occur more casualties um the you need more resources assigned to the information operations because of all those that population and the world is watching so there there's just you know a book full of lessons that military should take about preparing for the most inevitable terrain that militaries will be employed around the world today and going into the future. Now, of course, one ongoing uh, case study uh, is the war in Ukraine. And you even in the summer of 2022, you went to Ukraine. Uh, what, what's been your impression so far in your view of the significance of urban operations with the, the war in Ukraine? So that's another long list Um and I don't want to be the guy who says I told you so, but in in the so militaries do plan for different types of war, and one of the hardest things is to understand the war you're in. Um, but we always say that the the biggest thing that you have a military for is um, for defense, for protecting your interests against your biggest enemy, your what we call your peer competitor. Well, Russia invading Ukraine is the since World War II it is the biggest peer on peer 
battle that, or war that has been. So in the urban lessons is that when Russia decided to engage, basically launch an unlimited war for total regime change in wiping out the nation of Ukraine, it had to have, it had one goal, one battle that mattered, and that's the capital city of Kyiv. So I went there to walk the ground to understand how Ukraine, um, in a single brigade of you know, 4,000-ish Ukrainian soldiers and the Ukrainian people defeated the second, on paper, most powerful military from achieving its goal in war, which was to take the Ukrainian government and instill a Russian government and make Ukraine as a nation go away and it become a part of the Russian Federation, just a you know a, a major part of, of Russia. They did it through urban terrain. Um, they did it by the unique features of, that are the the city of Kiev, which is ancient city that dates well before Russia or Moscow or or anything. It's an ancient city with some very unique features. And what the Ukrainians did was almost like um, ancient castle. They they closed the gates to the city to buy them time, um, as Russia made a huge mistake of launching against all the cities of Ukraine or, or, you know, like seven of them instead of waiting their, their major objective, which was the city. So this is why I'm pretty adamant that cities are the strategic operational and tactical objectives in war. And in Ukraine, um, the, all these lessons we're talking about urbanization, population growth, uh, connectivity has come out to fruition. There's, I'm sure Russia wanted to avoid lots of the cities going to wherever they were told to go, but they couldn't. All roads lead to urban. I mean, there is a little bit element of terrain as they couldn't get off the road. So you had, again, they had to pass through the urban. And Ukraine used their urban areas to effectively defend everything they held vital, which was their political seat of power, their populations, um, their military capabilities. Now, the Battle of Kiev. You know, the war didn't end, but the war was over for Russia as in achieving that goal. So it like in wars, it changed its goals for eastern part of, of Ukraine and for the southern part. But then again, the, the all the battles were about key pieces of urban terrain, logistical hubs, you know, seats of uh regional or local authorities and power. So the battles of Severodonetsk, the battle of Mariupol, the battle of Kherson, they all had their unique case study features, but the lessons are all to me, and I'm not just the, just because I'm the urban guy, the, the war in Ukraine has been about urban and militaries better be listening. Yeah, especially in the case of uh, Mariupol, uh, even though the Ukrainians were completely surrounded, they were able to tie down like large numbers of Russian forces and even kind of hinder Russian communications from Crimea to the Donetsk uh, regions as well. Yeah, that's the case study I I, I deeply desire to write. The Battle of Mariupol, where 3,000 Ukrainian defenders held down 20,000 Russian forces from moving to other parts of Ukraine to achieve their goals. They, they had a strategic so you can lose a battle and still have a victory so the the that the fact that they held off like Spartans at Thermopylae held down for over 80 days 20,000 Russian forces is is amazing and it's because of the unique features of that urban terrain right the fact that it had these 
large steel factories with um, nuclear bunkers literally underneath them that allowed them to defend even longer than a, a normal urban defense against that um, disproportionate combat power ratios would will allow you to because they understood their urban terrain better than the Russians did. Yeah, there was a recent uh, interview with the commander of the Ukrainian special forces on War on the Rocks that uh, they he said, yeah, we know the terrain. We know the terrain much better than the Russians. And that is why we're able to, you know, uh, you know, get the better of them on the battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, don't let my book um, not emphasize that some of the lessons of war, like urban terrain, are throughout the history. And in Ukraine, the other really predominant lesson is that the will of your soldiers to fight is um, as more important than the number of soldiers you have or the weapons you have. If your soldiers don't have the will to fight, if they're not fighting for a huge cause for each other, for their families, for freedom, then you're already losing. And that's what you've seen in Ukraine. And that's why... The Ukrainian special forces, to the defenders of Avistol and Mariupol, to the defenders of Kiev, have been able to do things that, which is really ironic. Everybody, not everybody, but people thought like, oh, Ukraine is going to fall in three days. Well, one, you don't understand urban warfare. And two, you don't understand the, that the moral is to the physical three to one, as Napoleon said. You got to have the will to fight. Yeah, and uh, Klauswitz mentioned uh, moral factors. I would also add, and I uh, can do this with my uh, grandmother who was Ukrainian, is this Ukrainians just have that fighting spirit. They just don't give up easily. <laughs> no, and they, they've already, uh, you know, and, and I, I hope this, this ages well, but Ukraine won this war a long time ago. Russia lost it. It lost it when it couldn't take the capital city, and it lost it when it didn't have it, the will to fight in it's not just his soldiers, but his population as well. Because like Clausewitz said, there's there's three major groups in, in any war. There's the military, of course, the, the ones fighting. There's the populations that support their military or don't support the military in the assigned mission they've been given. And of course, the political apparatus and its resiliency to support the operation and, and resist all other things and, and assign the right missions. If you don't, ha Ukraine has all three of those aligned um, and Russia has none of those. Now, what interesting story uh, in regards for a few and uh, Ukraine is uh, you kind of wrote this mini manual for urban warfare that kind of became very popular in Ukraine. I uh, heard, in fact, I even emailed you. It's like, Oh, was this like a reference to the uh, Margarita's uh, famous mini manual? <laughs> Absolutely. So you caught that. Um, I don't know if a lot of people did. So I have to state these, these disclaimers. I wrote I wrote that book um, with no affiliation to anybody um, as just as a, uh, just as an old guy who's who served a little time in the military and, and studied a little about urban warfare. But when Russia invaded Ukraine, I saw that the Ukrainian people asked their civilians to rise up and resist the Russian invasion. To fight for their freedom it literally calls across the radio is was to go out and resist really make them all tough talked out go out and resist so i felt i could do a little bit better than that uh, so i started writing tweets on what i would do as an urban warfare scholar in the tactics that have worked across time like in major battles like the battle of seoul or tona 
like all these lessons that I'd picked up about how to defend urban terrain, I started putting out tweets. The tweets became the manual that is the mini manual for the urban defender that the, once it started to build by, by, by March, early, the first weeks of March, it was a full manual. Um, the Ukrainian government, um, without me knowing, picked it up, translated it to Ukrainian, put it on their website for resistors, and then um, published hundreds of thousands of copies and distributed it across the entire country to allow them to do you know what? What is the one of the few revolutions in military affairs is the levee on mass. When you use your you ask your citizens to fight for their nation, and that's what Ukrainians did, but they didn't have time to train anybody. So just with a couple pictures, a couple instructions, um, and I'm hugely honored that that book was was in Mariupol. It was in it was in. I got pictures of the the Ukrainian version that they printed off. When I went to Kiev, actually, I actually got one for myself. I'm hugely honored that, look, if you understand how to use the urban terrain, you can do amazing things if you have motivated people willing to fight. But you also need to, you know, one, give them a weapon, which the Ukrainians did, right? They handed out 20,000 AK-47s in the city of Kiev in one day. Um, it's going to be really hard for any military, to include the best military in the world, to deal with that. Yeah, I've even heard about how stockpiles of even like old Mosin Nagants from World War II are being distributed. And it's like, well, hey, whatever works. Uh... Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, you actually host your own uh, podcast with the Urban Warfare Project. Can you tell our listeners uh, about that? And yes, there will be a link to it. I will urge our listeners to listen to it. Sure. So a, a, a labor of love for me is my own podcast, Urban Warfare Project, which is on iTunes, Stitcher, all of them, which for years now I've been doing and interviewing experts on some feature of understanding the city or some uh, veterans of battles or fellow urban scholars uh, about the unique field of urban operations. Because I interview even police chiefs on how to secure a city um, because the divide between political stability and instability and war and peace in urban areas, it can be a fine line. So the more I understand, the, the better I become as a student of it. And I just share it with everybody through, through the fact that I, I do it through podcasts. So uh, do you have any uh, final thoughts? We're kind of reaching the end of this very interesting uh, discussion, but do you have any final thoughts? No, I, I really appreciate. Um, I hope the 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 listeners get a lot of out of this pick up the book um it's, it's on amazon you can get a signed copy from my website johnspenteronline.com um but i'm pretty much an ad i'm adamant like i don't know everything i learn something new every day but something that i do know is that the present status of war is that it's urban and the future of war is that it's urban <laughs> Very fascinating. Uh, we usually like to end our uh, podcast by uh, asking our guests, what are you working on uh, now? And we did kind of get a little taste of that. Sure. So the, one of the bigger things that I'm working on that we didn't talk about is just continuing those case studies. So me and my uh, really, uh, you know, brother from another mother at this point, uh, Major Jason Drew, we write these case studies and we post them on the Modern War, so what's Modern War Institute website. Uh, we just finished one on the first Battle of Fallujah, which is not in the book. Uh, we'll do another one, a little deeper dive on the second battle of Fallujah, but there's so many that I'm, I'm fascinated by. I like Mariupol. 
that we're going to continue to write in those case studies. And eventually those case studies will also become another book. I'm thinking, I haven't talked to Jason, but I want to call it Concrete Wars because that's what it's about. Very nice. Maybe when you finish that, we can have you back on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, John Spencer, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.